Dakota, a musical podcast in the perfect end note to your week. Joining me today is the Justin Timberlake to my Duran Duran, the Frank Sinatra to my Bono, Rob Christopherson. Rob, how are you? I'm fantastic. I, I did appreciate uh, these intros this week because they're so off the goddamn wall, Brian. They're, they're also topical if you really think about yeah, it. Yeah, they are. For what we're going to talk about today. Yes, absolutely. You are absolutely correct. So, Rob, this week's episode is an interesting one. We're going to be talking about one of the biggest news stories of the year. Uh, Cruder Michael Bublé's great admiration of the musical act, The Deftones. <laughs> Rob, opinions on Bublé and The Deftones? Uh, the ultimate mashup, what we've been waiting for our entire lives. You have waited for this moment your entire fucking life. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, so um, uh, Buble posted uh, pictures of him in, like, a, so the Deftones dropped a new album, so he has the new album Swag on, and he's very excited. And uh, when the Deftones put out their last album, Gore, in 2016, Buble also tweeted very, like, excitedly about it. Uh, yeah, which uh, is, you you jump for joy when you hear that kind of shit, when you see that kind of shit. It's, it's amazing. It's fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, listen, Michael Buble is also Canadian, so I have, like, a, a soft spot for him, and it's fine. Um, you know, these are two things that I enjoy coming together. So I have a question then. What Canadian artists, aside from Brian Adams right now, uh, is not an artist you get behind in, from Canada? Ooh, shoot, that's a good question. Uh, I always stand for Celine. I always stand for the Tragically Hip. I always stand for, oh, you know who? Grimes. Oh, fucking Grimes. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a good one to not stand behind right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, god damn it! I had to think about that for a sec because I'm like, who do like who in the landscape is really like bothering everybody? And then that I just zeroed in on that. Yeah, no, it's just like like a moment in the night, a moment of clarity, <laughs> Brian. <laughs> uh, yeah, apart from that, it's really hard to think of like a Canadian musician right now who I'm like really, really hating on. Uh, it's it's tough. It's it's really tough to hate on any Canadian musician, uh, just uh, given. Uh, the status of Canadians in the world. Like, I was about to say, like, are there any American musicians that you're currently hating on? But I think you and I could probably go in for a while. Uh, yeah, I think it's just, you know, a, a beatdown. Uh, you you know, British musicians. It's pretty much anywhere. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. fucking... So are we, we're officially ruling, like, we're no longer calling him Johnny Rotten, right? We're calling him John Lydon. Yep. Fucking asshole. John Lydon, piece of shit. Um, yeah, a, uh, a flea, uh, bit him on the penis, so good for him. It's pretty much the way 2020 is going to go, right? So I think that is a great encapsulation of how 2020 is for a lot of people. Oh, speaking of, like, musicians we hate, I'm still tr- trying our Coded Challenge I'm still trying to get by the, blocked by the trapped guy. And so far, it's been a failure. Nothing, nothing. But he's, he's responded to a lot of my more outrageous tweets to him, so at least there's that. Uh, that's good. D- does he understand that you're trolling him? No, probably not. Uh, he uh, he called me a sheep the other day, which I thought was hilarious. That is so. that is hilarious. Uh, that's like calling someone a sheep in 2020 is like uh, dollar rack Alex Jones shit. Yeah, exactly. Like this is like the Dollar Tree or the Dollar General equivalent of like a, a like an Oreo cookie. Yeah, exactly. And nobody wants that. Nobody <laughs> wants that. Fuck. 
Let us move directly into uh, the main topic of, of today's episode, Rob. And that is something that you and I often are in the DMs. We're often talking just random music stuff. And then sometimes you mention um, uh, you or I are listening or you've, you recently purchased an album. And then suddenly we get talking about the album and realize it would make really great fodder for an episode. So recently you bought two albums. One we did not talk about and one we will be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, every now and then I will just think of an album and be like, oh, it'd be great to own that on vinyl. So... The, the first choice was Bleed American by Jimmy Eat World. And if you remember our episode where we did our brackets, Jimmy Eat World came out on top for me. So it was only it only made sense. But uh, one album that uh, I have been putting off buying a physical copy of uh, and keep returning to time and time again, like, you know, kind of song piecemeal at a time is Songs from the Big Chair by Tears for Fears. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You, you're like, Tears for Fears. A band you've probably never taken seriously in your fucking life because uh, the most notable song by them is this really upbeat number that has really dark lyrics behind it that you probably take for granted and don't realize they're as dark as they are. But, uh, you know... That is what it is, but uh, I, I find myself just picking apart songs from this album, returning to them, and uh, playing them over and over again. Um, Brian, how head over heels for this album are you? <laughs> it's funny you mention that because um, uh, Songs from the Big Chair has always been an album for me that I've been able to like listen to all the way through. Um, and just so, like, let's back up a sec. So Tears for Fears are an English pop rock band formed in Bath, England, 1981, by basically two men, Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. And so um, uh, there have been other members involved, especially during... Um, this one and uh, Season Love Afterwards, but more or less like the core duo is right here, right? So mm-hmm. they released their first album, The Hurting in, in 1983, which was a concept album uh, about like growing up in a, a primal screen therapy, which, you know, featured the uh, a song that they're now, I think, most identified with um, because of the Gary Jules cover of Mad World. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a very strange experience to like grow up with the Gary Jules version of Mad World and then go and listen to the Tears for Fears version because it is so very different like it's a very it, the, the tempo's different uh the instrumentation's different like uh early tears for fears and when i mean say early i mean 1983 tears for fears is a band very much caught up in like new wave like very much more veering towards new wave than uh they ended up going on their second album songs from the big chair so uh I listened to that album this morning because you told me to to give it a spin, and uh, it's a very strange album. I will will say that. It's just uh, the way that Kurt Smith uh, talked about it in an interview that that I caught on YouTube, he said that it was like a very straightforward album, especially for a band in England at the time, which I can totally see. It's... It doesn't have a lot of surprises on it. It it, it ha- it's very straightforward in in the way the songs play out. Yeah, it's funny because when the hurting came out, it, it, it's a great starting place for for um for the band. But I always felt its production to be very lacking, mm-hmm. right? So if you compare this that to to songs from the big chair, like there's a clear step up in every um, aspect of the band, both musically as well as production wise. 
Um, yeah, it is funny though because I had never realized that the song on their memories fade that Connie West borrowed that for the uh, chorus of um, Coldest Winter from 808 and Heartbreaks. Yeah. I never put that together until I listened to this album again recently because I'd. I guess I had always just listened to it and I guess like subconsciously had made the connection, but it was the first time I was like, oh, wait a sec. Like, oh, weird. Um, yeah. yeah. And as you were mentioning, like, uh, uh, Robin, I want you to take this album very seriously because of the fact that there is a lot of very interesting stuff that goes here. And I don't think it's just a collection of songs, but I think it is an overall piece that works so well. I mean, it's eight songs, 41 minutes. Um, beginning to end, front to back, and it it does, and we use this term a lot, but it does take you on a journey. It absolutely does, and like this is a very deep album in terms of its content, and uh, a lot of it is it relates to the Cold War, which is still somehow prescient in in a lot of the things. And uh, what I found. Uh, illuminating about this album is especially with the 2020 election shout is as ever a prescient song as it has ever been in terms of just the 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 nooks and crannies of what that song touches on because it touches on a lot of fucking things but before we get into that brian I, i i did some stats I did a little. I, I did some stat work, and it's really okay, hit me with it. It's a, it's really only one uh, stat. So I went back and I looked at the um, number one albums the year that song songs for the Big Chair came out, nineteen eighty five. Uh, there are some fuck some barn burners on this thing. So um, Princess Purple Rain celebrated its final like I think the twenty. For 23rd and 24th week at number one that the album it was a fucking uh, streak and a half uh, but it started the year that way but um, do you know what the uh, what album held the, the number one spot for the longest in, in 1985 I'm gonna do this game show style can I have a hint um uh dobro A oh visual God. representation of a dobro. I have no idea, Rob. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie to you. Like I'm just there's a thousand different things going through my mind right now. Uh, Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. Of course. <laughs> Spent nine Shit. weeks at number one. Nine of fucking course. weeks. Uh, Songs from the Big Chair did a total of seven weeks, not consecutively. It was knocked off for a week by. Uh, Reckless by Brian Adams, but because um, <laughs> uh, time uh, is just a flat circle here. Yeah. Um, other notable album number one albums of this year: No Jacket Required by Phil Collins. Spent seven <laughs> fucking weeks at number one. You, you weren't lying about some bangers on here. No, there are definitely some bangers. You know what? The other really barn burner of a, a of an album that was number one for just an extended period of time the miami vice soundtrack <laughs> well yeah of course you gotta have it in there you gotta have it in there uh beverly hills cop was number one for four Yo, let me pull up the let me pull up the soundtrack to, to do you have it in front of you i'm curious to see what the lineup is for the miami vice soundtrack i don't because i i um I okay, I'm going to use the power of the internet here do, to do, pull this up. yeah you gotta look because i'm super curious yeah music. right so, right, so. Hmm. oh, uh, some Glenn Frey. You got uh, Glenn Frey's You Belong in the City. Uh, Phil Collins in the Air Tonight. 
uh, Tina Turner's Better Be Good to Me. Okay, okay, all right. So, you know, de- definitely some some great songs on there. Uh, Make It Big by Wham was number one for about three weeks. Uh, like a Virgin by Madonna, same. Uh, even Center Field by John Fogarty was uh, number one for about a week. So, uh, I, I, what's it? Not the worst year for music. No, no, it was actually a pretty good year for music. Even uh, Hart's self titled album was number one for a week. So, uh, when you look at the fucking albums and, and the musical material that was coming out uh, for 1985, it, Songs from the Big Chair definitely is a standout. Uh, and we also can't forget about uh, We Are the World. It was spent <laughs> it spent four weeks at number one, Ryan. Four weeks. All right, Rob. Uh, um, so let us talk about We Are the World for a second, okay? So uh, the 2020 version of that, ostensibly, was the the misguided, misaligned, uh, <laughs> the celebrity edition of of Imagine. Yeah, it pandemic, really was. Right. Um, uh, were we to do this uh, the right way? What song would you pick for 2020 to sort of like uh, encapsulate everything that's going on in, in a charity benefit single? Oh shit! This is oh man, it's hard, uh, right? It's it's tough. It that's a tough fucking song. Um, I think that's going to be the the next Coda challenge. We're going to come back to the table next episode, and we're going to present a song that would be fitting for a "We Are the World" sing along that isn't fucking cheesy, like God, fucking celebrities isolated singing fucking Imagine. Oh God! I got two ideas right now. So Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath on Black Sabbath. Yeah, that's fair. Just the whole six minutes. That's fair. And then uh, the Beach Boys' "Good Vibration" is like my probably my more serious contender. No, that is that is a good choice. I'm going to come back to the table. Okay, uh, right. with one in in two weeks. Can I use a meeting metaphor? We'll circle back to that. Yeah, we will definitely circle back to that. Absolutely. I hate I hate saying that, but you know what? It it called for it, man. I, you know, I'm just a, I'm just the, you know it's the working hour here, so it is uh, the working so hour. We, yeah. <laughs> Before we get into the album, I kind of just want to talk about the title for a second. It's based on a book and miniseries uh, named Sybil about a woman with 14 different personalities who regresses in a specific chair called The Big Chair. And the funny thing is, um, and this was also done by bands like the Mars Walza and Nine Inch Nails, but the title track was kept off the album, which I find very interesting. Do you think that is because of copyright issues? No, not even that, right? Because they had sampled bits and pieces of um, Sybil on there. I actually do think thematically as part of the album itself, and like we'll talk about tracklist in a bit, but I feel like it. I don't. if I had to put it in there, I wouldn't know where to put it. Yeah, and exactly. Th- coming back to that. Exactly. Uh, I think just in the placement of the eight songs that make up songs from the big chair, they there a lot of care went into placing them because there were a fair amount of B-sides that came from this album. So Yeah, which I also want to talk about. But let's kick things off. Uh, side one, track one, shout, as we were talking about before, right? And I never... Uh, there's this common misconception that it's an emo song. I, I've never really seen it in that way. I don't know. Like, I always, as you were saying before, like, I always read it as a protest song. It's a protest song. It's, it's a very clear protest song from the beginning of uh, Orza Ball's delivery, shout, shout. You know, let it all out. These are the things I can do without. And, like, he goes through different various points of, like, standing up for what you believe in and how just because you're born into a family does not mean that you have to go along with what your family thinks. It addresses that. It addresses... 
the idea of not listening to what celebrities have to say. It, hmm. Uh, which is interesting in a song that gets as big as this. It's yes. it's kind of there's an irony there. Uh, it um it addresses the idea of trying to change someone's mind and it's literally trying to break their heart. Like uh, I, I I think this song has layers to it and layers and not only that but you get the layers and the instrumentation is more and more and more and more is added on to it. It's kind of like a uh, stop making sense. Um, experiment in a song in a way yeah it's it's definitely a reframing of of a lot of the different elements presented right so i think it gets lost when it gets covered by bands like destroy right when mm-hmm. they did their version of, of shout and call it show 2000 i feel like it was lost um uh, a lot of the the lyrical meaning was sort of like lost in that translation exactly and and i think when you look at songs from their discography later like uh, the the number one that i go to is defy which is yeah a very centrist kind of protest song which is very weird because it takes both sides and like tries to play both sides and you can't play both sides in a situation like this sorry <laughs> no i definitely do agree that like uh uh it's an interesting protest anthem um sort of like sugar-coated as like a new wave phenomenon yeah exactly um and it's, it has a very call to arms kind of feel to it and it always has which is uh great because like it, the lyrics are so simple you you could sing along to it easily like it's so funny like if i were to make a mixtape of like a ob- obnoxious uh intent i would put stan's rem and then i would put tears for fear shout yeah absolutely <laughs> one and two just really just things you need to do right now yeah exactly and i think the the only thing that i will say about shout is it suffers from being incredibly long Yes, yes. So uh, on the Deluxe or Super Deluxe, there's like edited down versions mm-hmm. that I, I prefer, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there, I mean, there's like a minute you could lop off, no problem. Easily, it's a six-minute song. Like, there's no reason yeah. for it to be as long as it is. But uh, I respect the creativity. I respect the creative vision. And for a song or for an album that has eight songs, it's it's fine. I'll, I'll live with it track two the working hour which is uh you know lyrically all about um how tears for fears has become a bona fide business more or less yeah exactly it's the idea of how when you're making an album it suddenly becomes a nine-to-five job so yeah it's very it's anthemic but it's very simple in its lyrical delivery which i appreciate and it takes uh, a minute to actually get there uh I feel like at times, like, this album meanders, but I don't mind the meandering because it Not builds to something epic. Like, uh, uh, I watched the Spotify sessions that uh, uh, Orza Ball and, and Smith did uh, five years ago for the 30th anniversary of this album, and they talked about how the working hour is surprisingly one of the songs that gets most requested next to the three mainstays, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, uh, Shout, and uh, Head Over Heels, which I, I found interesting, but it's uh, it, it almost kind of is the working man's anthem, which is kind yeah. of nice. Yeah. And it, it leaves a lot of room in it to kind of bask in, which I enjoy too. Yeah, we'll be dropping a link to that because I also watched it. It's a 40-minute set, really, really a lot of fun. Um, and... 
what I found interesting is how well the songs actually translated, you know, uh, decades onward, like to a live setting that seemed like minimally edited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and everybody just seemed so joyous to be in that fucking room. And um, w- one thing that I really love watching is Kurt Smith getting up there, getting ready to do Everybody Wants to Rule the World and still has like joy in his face every time yeah, he fucking yeah. gets up there. Yeah. It's fun to watch them together too. Like, it, yeah. you know, like they, the acrimoniously spent 91 and then came back together, but it's, it's a lot of fun to watch these two together sort of like do their thing. Yeah, absolutely. And like, uh, Orzabal is kind of a, uh, he's a talker and I, and I like yeah. how <laughs> Smith kind of just puts him in place a little bit at times. Well, we both viewed seasons from the big chair, which was the, the VHS uh, release that accompanied this album. And, uh, yeah, Orzabal definitely likes, the sound of his voice like that's like yeah he does he does and it's kind of like it's almost like uh, imagine an operatic man just talking normally it's great yeah uh track number three everybody wants to rule the world aka everybody wants to go to war yeah exactly with the original working title for that song uh it it touches on a lot of things at once which i i'm fine with it definitely relates mostly to um the Soviet Union, the Cold War. Um, there's there's imagery on this fucking song that is like, like shakes you to your core when he's when he's talking about how you know you, you could be in a room where you, nobody can find you and and you're holding hands at the end of the world essentially as the walls mm-hmm. come tumbling down, which is like delivered in that up-tempo high-pitched fucking tone is like it's terrifying in a different way uh and and one of the things that uh i always think of in a situation like this is a quote that i heard from a uh, citizen of iraq who said that one of the things that always made him uneasy was a uh clear blue sky because he'd always see the drones flying over and uh it relates to that, like being in a fucking fallout shelter in the hopes that you're going to fucking survive at the end of the world. But uh, it, it touches on a, a, a few different things like uh, it touches on like economic. Well, there's also like an anti. Yeah, there's an anti-capitalist yeah, kind of subtext the, going on, the, which is funny when it comes like right after the working hour. I feel like it's, it's funny. It goes from shout to this. To then, like, a culmination of the first two tracks, lyrically almost. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you get into the economic viability thing and how, you know, nothing ever lasts. And uh, you get into the environmentalist aspect of, you know, turning your back on Mother Nature. It's like, uh, people don't realize how dark these fucking lyrics are because... Uh, What's well, that happy guitar figure? It's the it's the shuffle that they yeah. got going on, right? And this is these were one of the tracks that actually like nobody was like super super um, stoked on having this on the album until it was like finally recorded. And their producer Chris Hughes kept making them practice it until they they got it right more or less. And uh, it definitely paid dividends. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the reason that this album is as um, arena ready as big sounding is because of the record label. I mean, they saw in the hit songs that they made, you know, from their first album, The Hurting, that, you know, there was potential there, but, like, they kind of just shifted it up a notch and be like, no, we gotta we gotta make these songs sound bigger. And, uh, like, as amazing 
as this song's like subtlety and in, in terms of uh, the darkness that it delivers, it's a hell of a driving song. It's it's like it's like the penultimate fucking the the ultimate driving song. It's amazing. It's funny you talk about the record label because I was reading an interview with Orzabal like uh, from last year, early this year. And he was just saying how like um, the hurting was like very introspective, very like navel gazely, and then they decided to go big with this one, right? So Chris Hughes um, teaming up with the the duo definitely kick open the sonic door, and I think that is most notable. I think in the next song, which uh, it, Mother's Talk, right? It's super interesting. I, it's like their most commercially interesting song in that like um, it reminds me a lot of like the the output of that period. So Duran Duran in the mid '80s, mm-hmm. songs like Wild Boys and Reflex. Um, same thing with. Um, the Cure at this time also uh, later that year released The Head on the Door featuring Close to Me and uh, Sax on the track A Night Like This. So I feel it's the beginning of a weird uh, era of like uh, progressive, uh, brighter, shinier uh, pop music done by like very depressed men. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it almost sounds like it's industrial in a way. Just, yeah. Just by how big those drums sound. It, it's incredible. And uh, and the sampling on there too, and I think that's something that like hasn't really been mentioned much in a lot of the stuff I read. But they they all over this album there there are samples, right? Yeah. Of, of like different um, you know instruments and and snippets and things like that that I feel like just fatten the sound so much. Yeah, absolutely. They kind of went all out in what they sampled. I mean, they sampled drum loops. They sampled uh, various different like keyboard sounds and stuff, and uh, it shows like just in how big the production is on most of these songs. Um, the exception being like I believe uh, the next next track that we yes. get to. So let us let us go to side two, right? I think that's the beginning of side yep. two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Rob, I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh, Everybody wants to rule into Mother's Milk is probably my my one two punch on this album. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I think you're right. Um, we can whack it out. Yeah, absolutely. I just I love I love the way that those vocals are on that song, the way that they're produced. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree, and like. Um, the um one of the the inspirations for mother's talk is um a a, a graphic novel called uh, when the wind blows by a guy named raymond briggs and uh, i own it and it's it's not something you read lightly it is one of the <laughs> most disturbing graphic novels i've ever read um it's just in the graphic nature with which it depicts atomic fallout it is yeah. terrifying and like and the, also, the great play of how like you know when you're a kid and you're making faces you're like you know your mother says oh well, you keep doing that it's gonna freeze that way it's gonna stick that way and like the play on that to mean that uh you drop the nuclear bomb your face is really gonna stay that way <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because Orzabal in Scenes from the Big Chair talks about how um, this song was written in the context of uh, American army bases and American nukes moving into England, right? Yeah. So, I, you know, as as tensions in the Cold War um, continue to mount. So I thought that was super interesting, too, to sort of, like, do that, the, the double metaphor. Really, it's it's a funny protest record, almost. Like, when you really consider the first half of it, and then we'll get into the second half, but, like, really, like, there's a lot here. Yeah, there really is. There's a, there's a lot to chew on, to bite on. Uh, the nice thing is, is like, I think it balances well the uh, introspective, m- more introspective songs that you're going to get to on the the uh, second half of the yeah. album. Yeah, so let's, let's talk I Believe. Let us talk I Believe. 
I believe is an interesting song because it almost seems like a lounge piano fucking piece. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very personal. It's very it's very Orzabal in the way that uh, it's kind of delivering his personal philosophies on things and uh, kind of how it cuts the uh, masculine image away from what you're normally uh, seeing in, in many cases. So, like, he's talking about, you know, like, dudes crying at times. Uh, it, it gets cheeky at times with uh, uh, the way that uh, he interprets people actually listening to the song, which is fucking amazing. Um, it's basically Orzabal's, like, personal treatises on life and stuff, which is... Yeah, great. I definitely feel like it was one of the more, like, per- like personal um, mm-hmm. moments of the album is, is the lyrical content in the song. And the interesting thing about this album is that they kind of cut Kurt Smith out of the writing in, in just um, a lot of the songs. I think like um, yeah, it was it was Orzabal and their their keyboardist for most of this, right? Yeah, yeah, Ian Stanley uh, for most of it, and uh, Chris Hughes. But um, I uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But uh, I mean. Kurt Smith will always go down in history as uh, like the singer of one of the most important songs of the last 35 years. So, <laughs> and it's funny when we were talking about this originally on Twitter that um, I, I made a, a comparison that like it's it's like listening to Allison Chains that Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell their voices are very alike, so sometimes it is a little bit more difficult to tell them apart. And I think it's the same thing um, uh, on songs from the Big Chair in terms of like being able to differentiate when one or the other sing. Like there are slight differences, but sometimes they're both singing together, and then sometimes you're 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 left wondering who's doing what lines almost. Yeah, exactly. The only difference you can kind of pick out is that where's the ball can hit the higher registers easier like uh they both have these very odd almost baritone voices that um are very british in a way and very unique like it's not something you're used to when you listen to uh this album or even any of the hit songs from it so let's talk broken in the next track. Mm. We're getting into the portions where uh, Orzabal is kind of commenting on like youth and how fleeting youth is. We're told to grow up so incredibly fast, and then uh, there's always like a part of youth that remains that you kind of like may go to at different times and i think mm-hmm. uh, uh broken is definitely part of that um and, and it's sandwiched in between head over heels which is uh well it sandwiches head over heels between two parts of broken which is a which is an interesting choice but it works thematically yeah it also is interesting so let's get into head over heels then because it's funny in that like uh, it's almost like the most hopeful song on the record in terms of like this is like a, a sort of like romance song more or less Head Over Heels sounds like a John Hughes movie. Yeah, exactly. And if you watch the music video, you get that vibe too. I yeah, think. it's 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 kind of very surrealistic uh, in the way that like he's falling head over heels for this librarian who doesn't want to seem to give anybody the kind of the time of day and just like stares at everybody with like this like cutting like 
don't bother me look, which is great. I, I love that. And like the, the music video is so weird, especially when Ian Stanley just like steps up to the fucking counter and there's this fucking keyboard that appears out of nowhere. Yeah. And he's just like, <laughs> and he's just like smoldering for the camera. So fucking great. So fucking great. Also like the monkey for whatever reason. Okay. We got a monkey in the video. Yeah. Right. You got Kurt Smith uh, kissing a monkey, giving a high five to a monkey, which is great. Uh, there is, no complaints about that whatsoever. It's almost funny because uh, I feel like this is almost like them at their most cliched in terms of like, this is what we want out of, you know, a song with commercial appeal, which is fine to me because it is so well-crafted that I can look beyond how uh, uh, conceited the the whole uh, creation of a song like this is, right? It's it's very saccharine. It's very like, it, it, like you were saying, it looks like it's, it's a living John Hughes movie that you sit down with. And then it goes right back into Broken. And the way that it's done um, is so natural that it, I don't even notice it till it it hits me like 10 seconds after the switch. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like after the first portion of Broken transitions into Head Over Heels, it's only like the final like 50 seconds of Broken that it transitions to. And but it's like, yeah, it's, it's incredibly seamless. I think what I love because Head Over Heels is my favorite song from this album just because of uh the instrumentation it sounds very cascading in the, in yeah, the way it's almost like northern solely right yeah very very much so but i think what makes it interesting is not only is it just kind of this love ballad but it's a love ballad from a guy who doesn't know if he loves this girl but yeah, yeah. feels like um she, she she just drives him nuts you know it's um it kind of reminds me of a um, deer in the headlights kind of situation where there's a lyric on one of the songs I can't remember, but he he's he says I secretly fall in love with everybody I I ever met every day, which is uh, it, it's an interesting line and it kind of um, it, it gives me similar vibes on head over heels because mm. uh, there are moments in the song where he's just basically saying I I, I don't even know if you're really worth it. But uh, just don't fuck with my heart, please. Yeah, like, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so finally, the last track on here, Listen, which I think is a great, somber uh, closing number. Uh, We were talking sort of at the beginning of this. um, If I were to place the title track, which is left off, I would definitely place it, um, replace it with Listen, uh, either or. But I I feel like Listen still is like, it's a great closer. It's It's a bit of a downer, but I feel like it's a great way to sort of like, like, let the album finish. It sounds like a sunset. It really does sound like a, a sun setting, just uh, Ian Stanley's uh, fucking keyboards on that song, just uh, the way that it plays out, and like they keep repeating the same Spanish phrase over and over again, which is, uh, it's interesting. I mean, that's, you know, Orzabal all the way in his uh, Spanish heritage, so... Um. <laughs> It's uh, yeah. I think uh, I think listen is definitely. You could probably change it out with some of the B sides if you really wanted to. But uh, in in a way, it feels very sunsetish, and uh, I can I can enjoy that. Yeah, I yeah. Like I was saying, like either or the the vibe is sort of very similar. Um, same thing with the B, like uh, with the big chair, the title track, the B side uh, from Shout. Uh, it almost feels like a John Carpenter track, the way that it's sort of like written up. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's so fucking weird. It's very it's very weird. Um, 
Well, speaking of weird, I want to talk about my favorite B-side, which is one that I had mentioned. Mm. It's uh, it's a track called Pharaohs. And basically, it is a soundscape of what I believe to be when you're waiting for your flight to the airport because uh, the instrumentation is sort of like very lush and dreamy. And then at the same time, you have uh, this voice sort of like talking about, you know, uh, different airport announcements. So I feel like it, it's an interesting soundscape. And, and that's the thing that I keep coming back to on this album. There's a lot going on uh, beyond just the songs, I, I do feel like, with, with this album album uh in the way that they're that each song is like meticulously produced but also evokes a, a certain feeling and then at the same time like works as as a, a soundscape beyond its musical qualities mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely um i think that's what when when tears for fears were at their prime i think that's what they were the best at you know um just they're very much influenced by psychology which is very yeah. strange to say they were uh, very influenced by Arthur Janoff and uh, his book, The Primal Scream, because that's essentially where their name came from. It's a uh, it relates to a section in the book about uh, childhood tears, like being replaced for their fears. Like uh, it's a very interesting concept. Uh, uh, and this psychologist is the same one that is responsible for John Lennon. Uh, coming out with his first solo album and the songs that appeared on that and like you know when you think of songs like god and like uh how very one note name-ish those songs were it was it was because he worked with that uh psychologist um what i find further interesting about this record is um the influences in in the way that they changed this band like you can hear like Talking Heads, Peter Gabriel, yeah. Brian Eno, uh, all of these kind of you know new wave bands of the time, but it, like their their sound was bigger. Like you, you could definitely hear uh, later on, you know, Peter Gabriel. So um, you can hear parts of that on this album, or at least it seems like Peter Gabriel took from that. Uh, Peter Gabriel's always been great at making songs that sound big that don't sound like they sell out in a way mm-hmm. um which uh like like big time is enjoyable um I think it got ruined when the WWE used it but uh <laughs> beyond that like I I always liked how big that song sounded and yet didn't sound like it uh sold out or was cheesy and I think that's what songs from the big chair does really well is that most of these songs sound big, but they don't sound, uh, oversold or over commercialized or, uh, anything like that because they're enjoyable and they never, they've never stopped being enjoyable, which I appreciate more and more with each listening that I give this thing. And like, the nice thing is, is like you have three different versions. You can get as much as this album as you want. You can get the regular, the deluxe, the super deluxe, whatever floats your boat. But yeah, the super deluxe clocking in over five hours, if anyone's mm-hmm. interested. Yeah. And I mean, they've gone back and they've released deluxe versions of pretty much all their albums with the exception of their last two, which it's fine. We don't need those. It's funny that you mentioned that it's not over commercialized because um, I can't remember which interview it was, but uh, uh, Orzabal was talking about how Chris Hughes was bringing American influences in, specifically Stealing Dance. So when you listen to Asia and then you listen to this album, you can see the lineage there. Yeah, oh, you could totally see the fucking lineage there. Yeah, absolutely. Holy fuck. Yeah, I know. I, I, I didn't even think about that for 
yeah because i was trying to figure out like what specifically like just production wise i feel like a lot of the stuff you're listening that happened after is like so much even like stuff like billy joel of that era right mm-hmm. i feel like like was sort of like taking from this and and later on um in terms of like the bright production the the production decisions the way that the drums sound and so for me it's kind of funny in that like this isn't necessarily like a ground zero for a lot of this stuff but it is something to point to when you think of an emerging trend in popular music for the last half of the 80s it's an album i would say define the 80s and what the good shit that came out of the 80s could actually be. Uh, I think this is an album you can point to and, and do that. I don't think there are a lot of albums that can do that. I think, uh, like, Peter Gabriel's So is definitely um, best enjoyed in its own kind of space. It's not... There are, you know, commercially viable tracks on there, but, like... Well, so same thing with I mentioned Duran Duran before. Duran Duran doesn't mm-hmm. have like apart from Rio, but that's an earlier album. Doesn't have like a definitive album of the same sort of caliber. Like they've had a lot of like really great songs during that period, but th- there's nothing that like sort of like sets them apart in this way either. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And um, the, I think the amazing thing is is like Tears for Fears was never really able to capitalize on this. Like Seeds of Love, it's okay. Um, yeah. Pretty much everything after it is okay, but I think it's also a band making peace with the fact that they didn't want to continue making uh, albums like that, which is perfectly fine. I don't mind that because, like I like I said, I'll go and fucking listen to this thing a thousand fucking times more just because <laughs> it never gets old. It's the perfect track length, which is 41 minutes, and... It's for an eight song album. It's it's perfect. I agree. And it's funny because I was thinking about the 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 sort of like later influences that this has had. And I think there are artists like like Bon Iver and James Blake that you don't have without Tears for Fears. Mm. Even uh, a dubstep artist who is more on the atmospheric side like Burial. Like there's this like blade sound in the song The Big Chair that also shows up in his track Distant Lights. If you listen to it, it's sort of like a similar kind of thing. And it's it's evoking like an emotion and a feeling that um, a lot of this new wave uh, music wasn't really good at doing necessarily. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, I think um, it, in terms of like trends of the 80s I think New Wave was like a big trend and to the point where a lot of people tried to duplicate it and failed at doing so as opposed to an album like this where you pack on the influences and uh, you, you see where they can take you which is as much um Chris Hughes bringing that to the table as you know much as Orza Ball, Stanley and and all the rest of those guys. I mean, they're primarily a duo, but Ian Stanley had a lot to do with this album just in terms of the sound that the synths had, the keyboards had and stuff like that. I don't think we would be talking about this album without him. Speaking of the instrumentation though, like uh, one of the many things that happened in the 80s was the proliferation of of saxophones all Mm -hmm. over this place and i really like this was all done super tastefully uh, as an added layer to the music and not necessarily as distracting 
um, as like <laughs> Glenn Frey's the heat is on. Oh Jesus Christ! Uh, yeah, no, that that fucking song. Um, yeah, no, it's it was done in a subdued manner, so I can respect the hell out of that. Uh, the most you see it featured is on I believe, just because yeah, like exactly. there's a minimal amount of instrumentation featured on it. So yeah. But it also, like, once again, it works so well in service of the song and not as, an, you know, a, a sort of distraction from the song, mm-hmm. which, like, for example, like, Careless Whisper, like, we all know the intro line, but it's, you pay attention to just that yeah. after a while, right? Yeah, and it's, in in the case of Tears for Fears and working with a good producer, that producer, you know, Chris Hughes was able to make these big sounding songs without making them feel like the, a lot of just instrumentation was just packed on everything fucking works. Everything brings the fucking songs together, which is, is phenomenal. And, uh, in terms of uh, big production, if you can do that and not make it seem like you're listening to candy, like straight up sugar, you're, you're fucking doing something right. Yeah. So your favorite track on this album is Head Over Heels. I'm going to pick Mother's Milk. Um, we would love to hear what people think about this album. Are we just crazy? I don't think we are. But if anyone has any like really, really harsh and strong opinions, you can head on over to Twitter and tweet at us at the Coda Podcast, all one word. You can also email us at the at gmail.com. And also you can hit us up on Instagram. But uh, keep those for pictures only. We don't want uh, long screeds in our in our uh, DMs. Nobody there. wants long screeds in their fucking Instagram DMs. Are you kidding me right now? No. That's this... email. Email or fax us. Fa- fax Brian Hasty up in Canada. Yes. Okay. <laughs> like, don't waste your fucking screeds on Instagram. Do you know how thin those fucking text blocks are? No. Yeah. No, don't waste my fucking time. I lose my place easy and then you know what? Delete. I don't, I'm yeah, not. Yeah, you're just not going to even bother with it. No. Right? So, no. Yeah. I want, I want, you know, physical print media fucking 2020 bring it back (laughs) like it's been a fucking dumpster fire of a goddamn year the least you could do is show the effort put it in print form please rob and i gotta go back and think about our uh our uh we are the world style song for for next episode we'll get to that Mm -hmm. uh just a i guess a quick housekeeping item uh this is like the real episode 19 because we had recorded something and unfortunately there were some technical issues on both sides that prevented us from releasing a couple weeks ago but i feel like we came back strong with this one we did uh we gushed about it my uh microphone is working properly at least i have the right one selected so you know i think this is better because uh the last episode was right before the fucking election and uh we it, were both kind of we were both kind of like very uh um uh eh about it i think while recording it we were definitely eh about it we were um dreading I believe the, the term scatterbrained is like really good for that one and not in, like the fun kind either yeah exactly it was just the, the next day was looming in all our minds and uh you know <laughs> yes that's exactly how it felt we uh we overcame you know this land is your land whatever protest song you want um uh we're, we're still pretty much overcoming uh you know i think uh biden's uh slated to win georgia two more times this week but uh you never know yeah, who who knows anymore in this hellfire, right? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows this in this swamp that we like? Uh, there were promises to get it drained, and then it wasn't. 
I'm very mad about that, but I'll live. You know, it is what it is. I guess by draining swamp, you mean um, filling it up, actually. He just, <laughs> he was confused by the his inverse. own fucking words. How could I forget? How many? <laughs> Thanks for setting me straight. I know. Like, how many fucking people can you fire from your own goddamn administration? But, you know. Let's find out. Let's, let us count. The, no, let's not count the ways. Uh, Rob, do you want to tell people about your, your newish project, or is that still in your wraps? Well... I'll give you guys a little teaser. So uh, it was a couple of weeks ago that we recorded the first part of an actual play D&D podcast that will be coming out within the next couple months. It's going to take me a little bit to figure out how I want to do the sound design and get everything going. But uh, it's tentatively titled Rolling Through the Realms. It's a D&D podcast and it's set in the Forgotten Realms. So... You had that to look forward to. Brian definitely was a part. He played one of the most amazing uh, <laughs> NPCs I, I, I think uh, could could ever be the brainchild of two people. But uh, you know, I'm really really hoping that like in the next year or two, I get to come back at least once. Oh yeah, no. Uh, okay, Dave Sizzlepan will be back. <laughs> And then, of course, Rob and I are also, uh, we belong to a separate podcast that's an actual uh, play RPG podcast called The Order of Podcasters. And, uh, you know, it's me, you, Techno Funk Boy, uh, Jen Taylor, uh, you know, so much, so much fun. So weird. It is so weird to play a uh, coast-to-coast AM type radio host, which is... Uh, it's fun being over the top at times, especially when you have fictional chip beef to (laughs) shove at everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very, very true. Rob, any last words before we close off episode 19? Um, if you have never listened to songs from the big chair, like all the way through, you've only listened to everybody wants to rule the world. You've only listened to shout. You've only listened to head over heels. I encourage you to go listen to the whole fucking thing because from top to bottom, it's one of the most damn near perfect albums that you will ever listen to. That's what I got for you. (laughs) I almost feel like what I'm about to say is an infomercial, but it is a one time only offer. 40 minutes, one try. What are you, what are you waiting for? What are you missing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 1-800 tears for fears. Uh, too many numbers there, but that's fine. You know, uh, people will still dial it, you know, <laughs> fucking, you thought that, uh, 8675309 was the only number from the eighties that you needed to remember. No, Brian just False, set yeah. you up. It reminds me of the episode of double uh, density that Angela and I did this summer where we called up one uh, old 1-800 numbers from the eighties to see if they'd work or not. Oh, interesting. Did any of them work? So, two of them did. Two or three of them did. Uh, they were mostly for repurpose, repurposed sex lines, though. So not not the way to go. No, probably not the way to go. But uh, if you find yourself bored uh, sometime during this winter, Brian just gave you a new activity to try. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And with Skype, you're free to do 100 numbers as long as you want for as, uh, you know, as many numbers as you want. Just to let you guys know. Yeah, exactly. Brian Hasty bringing you the tech tips that you didn't know you needed in 2020. <laughs> Rob, this has been it for episode 19 of the Coda Podcast. And as always, everyone, make sure to keep the cans on. <laughs>